The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. And what I like to call us. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your place. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn. I'm a registered dietitian and what I like to call us an investigative nutritionist. And I'm on a mission to find food truth. Joining us today is Mr. Eric Scott. Eric joins us from South Dakota, where he is an agronomy sales representative for a seed company. Eric, welcome. Hi, how are you doing, Melinda? I'm doing just fine, and I'm thrilled that you're with us. You know, I, I probably should preface our conversation by saying that it might seem a little strange for a dietitian to want to interview a seed dealer, but if you think about it, you know, all of our food really starts with a seed. And yeah. so ultimately we are indeed connected from a public health standpoint and an environmental health standpoint. So I'm thrilled to have you with me. You, In our conversation before our uh, interview, you really told me quite a lot about your history in farming, and I think it's important for people uh, to know that. So let's start out... Um, just a little bit about your background. You you say that you're an agronomist. What is an agronomist study? Basically, the uh, uh, growth patterns of, of farm crops and uh, understanding how they grow, uh, the soil they grow in, the nutrients they use, the different types of crops, and what type of environment they will succeed under, and how to how to improve those crops uh, with twisting and, and rotations and things like that. Now, you had mentioned that your ancestors came to South Dakota via Norway mm-hmm. and that your grandfather was actually, I think you said he, you were going through some of his old records and books and you discovered that he was an organic farmer. Yeah. Yeah, it, my, my grandpa's grandpa uh, actually immigrated from Norway in 1876 and settled uh, here in southeast South Dakota. And, and so I come from... Uh, uh, I'm a fifth-generation farmer out of that family. And after my grandpa's death, I moved into, out to his farm, and I live in his house, and he, he had a, a, quite a collection of books. And as I was going through it, I found uh, a lot of books that, that he had collected over his life about uh, how to grow garden and, and feed cattle and grow crops in rotations and in intense rotations and how to capture, uh, you know, nitrogen from lagoon crops and things like this. And it was really interesting to me because I had never really thought of my grandpa, I guess, as an organic farmer. I just thought of him as a as a farmer and a, and a person that was well thought of in the community and uh, did a good job. And as I got to thinking about it a little more, I realized that everybody, I guess, in his generation, uh, if they were alive today doing the things they were doing 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, would be considered organic farmers. And uh, it struck me as kind of interesting because now when you talk about organic farmers, you know, the flag comes up and you're immediately set aside as some kind of somebody that's different. And when I think of my grandpa and his dad and all his brothers and so forth, I guess I don't think of them as different people. You know, they, they raised their own food, they took care of the land, they had intense rotations. And I think that if we just look back a little bit on what they studied and, and their practices, that it would improve our farming situation dramatically. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. You know, I don't know how this notion of, 
you know, somehow farming organically becomes not as desirable as using technology. But mm. I know that you had mentioned, for example, something that's very important that we don't um, we don't often think of is that I don't know how it is in southeastern South Dakota because um, I've not traveled through that region for a while. But I know in, if I drive north, for example, into Iowa, all I see for miles and miles are corn and soybeans. And I know you had, you two had mentioned that southeast South Dakota, big soy and corn country. But when you when you spoke about your grandfather, though, you said that he had a wide variety of crops, and I fear that we're losing some of that biodiversity. Yeah. I- he uh, completely, um, yeah, the area I'm in and, and the majority of, of eastern South Dakota anyway, and it's even moving further west, is a crop rotation of corn and soybeans. Maybe they get, you know, some of these guys might put a little wheat uh, into the rotation, but that's about it. Now, my grandfather's farm that I live on, was it's a small farm, it's 240 acres, but I can remember he, he would raise alfalfa, corn, oats, wheat, barley, and soybeans, and, and have that rotation of five or six crops constantly. And today, it's pretty much down to one or two? Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, all anybody raises is corn or soybeans, or even, there's a lot of people that are just in a continuous corn rotation. So, why is that? I think that one is the, uh, I think the market has been pushed to raising corn because we use the high fructose corn syrup in uh, a lot of our foods that we don't even realize. And then soybean oil uh, is also used in, in a lot of our foods. So do um, farmers but, receive a, a better return then if they just grow those two crops rather than having more diversity? Well, you know, it goes back to the, the government incentive programs, the subsidies, and the crop insurance. Uh, you take, it, for instance, like alfalfa, uh, there's, there's no federal crop insurance on it and there's no government subsidies. So if you're a large farmer and you, let's say, have 500 acres of alfalfa and you have to go borrow the money at the bank to pay cash rent, uh, pay for your inputs and all these things, and you don't have, and you aren't able to, uh, have federal crop insurance, which is, which is basically provided by the government to back you in a, in a case of a failure, you aren't able to borrow the funds at the bank to continue to farm. So the government has set it up somewhat uh, they've simplified it so that corn, wheat, and soybeans are, are an easy crop to go borrow money against uh, so that you're able to farm. And then the other thing is, is I think crop rotations, and then when you get hay and you put in livestock, it becomes very labor-intensive, and it's, it's people have gotten somewhat used to uh, not doing all that work, and it's hard to do over a large amount of acre, acres. Mm-hmm. By not doing that work, though, um, what what do we lose? Well, we definitely lose biodiversity. We're depleting our soil structure and our organic matter levels in our uh, in our soils. I I've gotten somewhat interested in in tall grass prairies and and the uh, I've done a lot of research on that. And it's it's interesting when you read some of the original soil surveys that were taken in the early 1900s uh, in my area, anyway. Well, organic matters were nine and ten percent, you know, when they originally plowed up the tall grass prairie, and now we're down to two to three percent. So, in a matter of a hundred years, and I would say probably even more so in fifty, in the last fifty years is when we've got gotten out of intense rotations. We've, we've lost uh, well, well over half our, our soil organic matter. So I think I think we're losing that, and, and you know, if we get to the point where 
our organic matters deplete much more, it, you know, it doesn't matter. We've been able to mask it somewhat by, by putting synthetic fertilizers on and getting the crop to respond to that. Once your organic matter levels get so bad, your soil burns out, and it won't matter how much fertilizer you put on, you're going to just see a steady decline in, in uh, uh, crop yields. Well, it's very interesting that you mention that because there's also been USDA research on nutrient levels in food, mm-hmm. and we're finding that there are, the foods today have less nutrients than they did, say, 50 or 100 years ago, and that for people who can't see that connection, there's a relationship between the nutrients that are in the soil and the health or the organic matter of the soil and then the nutrients in the crops. I mean, there, there's also some... The variety of the crop is also going mm-hmm. to determine the nutrients as well, yep. and certainly you know rainfall and and things like that. But the truth is that we have to look at the quality of our soil, as you of course know better than I, in terms of having nutritious foods at the end of, at the end of the harvest. Yeah, we, we, I agree 100 percent that, and you see it in spring wheat sometimes. Well, that's one that's getting harder and harder to get protein levels to the acceptable level that they want to uh, to make bread out. And, and we'll see it. We'll see it in all our crops where our protein levels and and your micronutrients and those things will deplete as your as your soil levels deplete. And we've you know we've we've basically mined. We've we've done a real poor job of taking care of our taking care of our soil in the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. But your grandpa did a really good job of it. I think. You know, in your description of his uh, his methods, what jumped out at me was that he was a true steward of the land. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to farmers, I, I think I, I get a sense of pride that that is something that's very important to them. That they, it's their very nature. It's almost in their genes that they want to be stewards of the land. And it seems that maybe the system is set up um, to make it harder for them to do it. And I wanted to get your opinion about what you've seen from you're you're selling farmers seed what do the farmers tell you what are their fears and what do you see as a salesman in terms of what kinds of seed are available to farmers well their fears definitely are uh as is the our seeds and and our opportunities to buy seeds are being controlled by just a few companies now where even 10 years ago there was many many companies to choose from and there was good competition and worked really hard to bring better products to the marketplace, you know, you know, to gain the gain the farmers' purchases on those acres. And basically, since the introduction of GMO crops, uh, mainly glyphosate glyphosate resistant or Roundup resistant crops, uh, we've seen that narrow down to only three or four major companies that control all the all the the seed in the United States, and, and only about two of them that. Can the majority of the genetics uh, of, of the seeds. And what I see on a daily basis, like the guys at most, the farmers I deal with, uh, feel like they've kind of been baited and switched into a, into a system that now they, they feel somewhat trapped and, and don't feel as though they can get out of. And that would be the, the Roundup uh, resistant crops and then the uh, insect resistant uh, crops also. Yeah, I remember, you know, one of the sales pitches for these crops is that you spray once and then you're done. Yeah. And uh I've read some statistics that show that that show that we're actually using more pesticides today 
than we did prior to these genetically modified seeds. Is that true? Yeah, I think in, in a lot of cases, I know uh, I visited with a fellow about this this morning. I can remember when, when Roundup-resistant uh, beans first came out, and, and our uh, Roundup reps would tell us that all you needed to do was just spray one quart of Roundup in season, and that was all you had to do. And they didn't care how you did it. You could spray a pint and then another pint or just one quart, and you were done. And so we did that for a few years, and it worked good. And then what ended up happening, you know, a few years later, then you had to spray two quarts in season to make it work well. And then you had to get to the point where you had to use a pre-emerge herbicide before and probably still spray two quarts in season. And now we're to the point, on corn anyway, where you use um, a pre-emerge before and you use two applications of Roundup, and then you have to tank mix in some uh, some residual uh herbicides in with the Roundup to, to kill some weeds that Roundup has a problem with. Hmm. I guess that's good news if you're the person selling those products. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I think is funny is how it's come full circle. I mean, before they, uh, before they came out, we would do a residual herbicide down and then a residual herbicide post-emerge. Well, now we're doing the exact same thing, plus we're, we're, we're putting in the Roundup also. And we also are paying for the technology fees on the seed. Uh-huh. And those tech fees, let's see, and we should probably explain what they are. And let's talk a little bit about how those genetic modifications are made in the seed and uh, who who pay. And there are different ones that you have stacked genes. I've heard that. Could you explain that? Well, right now in the, in the corn market, uh, we have, you, you have herbicide resistance uh, in, in crops, and then you also have insect resistance. And so the main one uh, would be the the Roundup resistant in the in the corn, and that's also in the soybeans. And then in the corn, and they also have a, a, a BT corn borer, which is resistant to European corn borer, or makes the plant resistant to European corn borer. And then they also have a BT rootworm, which makes the plant resistant to rootworm. And then they stack all that together so that you can spray it with Roundup. And then it's also resistant to European corn borer and also resistant to uh, Roundup rootworm. And so that's where we get the term, v- the VT3s or the Herculex Extra. Uh, those products are, are resistant to those insects. So let's say I want to plant a seed that doesn't have all of this genetic manipulation. Let's say I don't want to pay these increasingly costly tech fees. Mm-hmm. Let's say I decide that... You know, my my grandpa, he knew what he was doing. I want to go back and I want to grow some of these non-GMO seeds. Can you sell those to me? On the on the soybean side, uh, you would have a hard time finding a non-Roundup resistant uh, soybean variety offered by any seed company. Why is that? Uh, well, on the, on the soybeans and the corn are a little bit different on on the on why why there's less availability on the soybeans. What happened? When that system first came out, it uh, it worked well, and, and the acceptance was huge. And the majority of the farmers in the United States, it only took them three or four years to switch to 99% Roundup ready. And and so what happened was is the the uh, uh, the market basically said there's no need for con- what I call conventional, which is a non-Roundup ready soybean out there. And, and so the, the seed companies just quit offering them. 
and that demand hasn't come back yet. And, and I would assume if it does, maybe we'll see non non GMO soybeans a little bit more. But then, then we've got another problem with who controls the genetics, and we'll see if they allow us to do that. Now on the corn side, you can get some uh, non GMO corn, but the problem that I see with it on a daily basis is that the ones that are offered are not in the uh, the newer and elite genetic packages. All those, when they're brought to market, are, are forced to be uh, uh, sold with traits in them. Well, is there any sort of federal control over these seeds to maintain some sort of biodiversity? Or, you know, for example, let's talk, too, about the organic farmers who... By law, if if a food is labeled as organic, it it can't contain genetically modified ingredients. Who's who's protecting the organic farmers against contamination? I couldn't answer that question. I'm not sure, and, and it's it's somewhat scary because you know, especially in corn, you have cross pollination, uh, and that can happen up to a mile. And so, if you're an organic farmer, or and and you don't you don't want to grow GMO crops, and and you found a seed that doesn't have GMO in it, and you're raising it, and and your next door neighbor has GMO crops, uh, or even somebody that's three quarters of a mile away, uh, the corn will has a has a real likelihood of cross pollinating, and and the grain from your organic field or non-GMO field will show up with traces of. GMO in it. Hmm. As far as you know, have there been any lawsuits against uh, the seed companies that have contaminated the organic farms? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. It's odd because the lawsuits seem to be coming from the, um, well, I know Monsanto's been, there have been movies that have come out talking about, you know, the, the farmer in Canada who didn't intend to plant a genetically modified canola, some of it blew on his land, and then Monsanto was suing him. Mm-hmm. How does yeah. that work? Yeah. <laughs> well, I understand that that deal. Uh, that fellow out there in Canada, uh, he uh, he had done for years and years and, and been a steward of the land and selected seeds that worked well for his property and uh, had no no interest in using the Roundup Ready canola. And uh, he lived along a major highway, and I don't know if you've seen canola, but it's a real small, small seed, and mm-hmm. it's about impossible to contain. And some canola had blown off trucks as they went past his house and contaminated his field. And the next year, uh, there was volunteer Roundup Ready canola, and Monsanto came and said that he wasn't going to be able to keep his seeds back anymore because of because of this round of pretty canola that had blown off of trucks, blown into his field, and came up voluntarily, even though he didn't want it. And it cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight it. And, and they basically confiscated all of his seeds. And, and that, that, that's what happens if, if you go against uh, the trade agreements. Well, in that case, this fellow didn't have a trade agreement, but let's say you wanted to uh, keep some of your soybean seed back or something of that nature. You're not able to do that under this under the the current situation. What do you think your grandfather would think about that? <laughs> well, he wouldn't be very happy with. Well, first of all, he had never paid three hundred dollars for a bag of corn, and uh, he was a big seed saver. 
uh, you know, that was the way people did things, is they, they kept a few bushels of oats and wheat and barley and soybeans and different things, uh, their vegetable seeds, and they kept them back from year to year, and, and that's what they did. And I guess they didn't feel like people could patent and own, you know, the, the, the genetics that were, that were put to people, you know, have been here for millions of years. And it's funny how, how these companies have linked traits to genetics that have been on our earth for millions of years and though they can't patent the genetics once they get the traits into them then they patent it Mm. you had mentioned something uh well there are two issues that come up uh to mind one is the dependence on nitrogen fertilizer we had talked about that too now does your company also sell fertilizer is it just the seed no uh I worked for uh, about 10 years in, in retail ag uh, where I sold fertilizer and chemicals and, and seed. I, I, I spent a lot of time in the fertilizer business. And, yeah, you had asked me if, if you know, what my thoughts were on a, a famine in the United States. And, and I believe my response was that I think it's quite high that it could happen. And the, the my second fear is... Um, is that we spend a lot of time talking and, and about our dependency on foreign oil. Um, a bigger fear of mine is our dependency on foreign nitrogen sources. And, I, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is that the majority of the nitrogen that we use in the United States to raise corn and, and wheat is imported nitrogen from oil-producing countries. And if they really wanted to to harm the United States, uh, a much better way to do it would be to to stop him, you know, exporting nitrogen to us. Our jacket is very high. Versus, you know, instead of instead of cutting our oil supply off, uh, if we were to if we were to if we were to lose even half of our imported nitrogen, um, we we would have a complete disaster to the Midwest uh, with our corn crops. That's scary. So on the one hand, we've got this dependence on nitrogen via foreign oil mm-hmm. and on the other hand we've got uh, a single or very few very narrow genetics in our seeds so that we become vulnerable it seems to me from two perspectives vulnerable for the nitrogen the fertilizer but also vulnerable because we've we've allowed ourselves uh we've left ourselves wide open for say some sort of plant disease that would wipe out the entire crop mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you, from a, say, like a corn genetic standpoint, there, there's some diversity out there, but sometimes we don't understand it maybe as well as we should because a lot of the same companies end up selling some of the same corn genetics. And uh, so a farmer, let's say he wants to be genetically diversified, he might go buy five different hybrids from five different seed companies, and they could all come from the same genetic family. Wow. And so there's really, is the Environmental Protection Agency, um, are they in, in charge of controlling that kind of issue? What they do is, uh, you know, I don't know how many people are aware of it, but let's say you buy a bag of seed corn, it is, it's required that on the seed tag that the variety number is the same. Um, so if you buy a bag from XYZ Company and another from... Joe's seed company, the high, you know, the, the 
brand number might be different, but the variety number has to be the same on there. But a lot of people, I don't think, understand that maybe like they should. Mm. So, Eric, what what can we do to help farmers as eaters? Um, I think you have to... You know, I think far- farmers are very resilient people and want to do the right, do the do right things. And if we, de- as a consumer, if they if they demand good, healthy food and more of a diversity of food, I mean, when you look at the majority of the stuff that people eat, they're very high in corn syrup and soybean oil. It will create markets that will force us or allow us or allow farmers, I guess, to raise uh, more biodiverse uh, crops on our farms. And I think from a standpoint of awareness, I think it's good to talk about this stuff and and maybe make people aware of the insides of this industry a little bit and just kind of how stranglehold, you know, the stranglehold that's around the, the American farmers to the point where they don't have a lot of choices right now. And in order to have choices, the people that buy the end product have to change their habits maybe just a little bit. Well, Eric, uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today and helping all of us understand a little bit more about the farmer's plight in, in our food system. Um, I, you have a, I actually sort of discovered you on the web. Do you want to share with us what your website is in case people want to read more about uh, your work on your blog? Yeah, that'd be great. It's uh, sustainablecattle.com. Um, it kind of started as I, I also raise cattle, and I, I started it to share some of my ideas on what I'm doing here differently on cattle, and then I've, I've ended up writing a lot of stuff about sustainable farming and challenges we have in the seed industry and in the government and farm subsidies and some of these things. And my email address is on there, so if anybody has any questions, feel free to... Uh, send them to me, I, I, I'd be happy to answer them. Okay, and that's uh, your email address is section 16 cattle co cattle co, yep. Cattle co at, 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 at live.com Yep, that's exactly right. Okay, and once again, the website? Uh, sustainable cattle dot com Sustainable cattle dot com Okay, wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Uh, Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studio in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. Thank you very much, Eric. You've been very insightful. Well, thank you, Melinda. I appreciate it.